0: Hey RareCast listeners, Rare in the Square brings together rare disease innovators each year to forge partnerships and advance innovation. The event takes place in conjunction with the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference and the Biotech Showcase, the annual financial conferences held in San Francisco that kick off the new year in biotech. While both of those events have gone virtual in 2021 because of the pandemic, Global Genes is partnering with the Biotech Showcase to create Rare Beyond the Square this year to highlight rare disease progress and innovation, share information, and facilitate partnering and networking among companies, investors, and rare disease communities. Tune in to Rare Beyond the Square, January 11th through the 14th, 2021. You can register at globalgenes.org under the events tab. Thanks. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is RareCast. The genetic basis of sickle cell disease is long been understood, but it's only been recent that new treatments in a growing pipeline of therapies have emerged. The inherited blood disorder causes red blood cells to become crescent-shaped, which restricts the flow in blood vessels and limits oxygen delivery to the body's tissue, leading to severe pain and organ damage. At the end of 2019, Global Blood Therapeutics won accelerated approval for Oxbrida, the first FDA-approved therapy that directly inhibits sickle hemoglobin polymerization, the root cause of sickle cell disease. We spoke to Ted Love, president and CEO of Global Blood Therapeutics, about the changing landscape of sickle cell disease, Oxbrida, and the company's pipeline behind that, and how the company is approaching the global need for the drug given the higher prevalence of the disease in certain parts of the world. Ted, thanks for joining us.
1: It's a pleasure to join you, Dan. It's always a pleasure.
0: We're going to talk about sickle cell disease, global blood therapeutics, and its effort to bring new treatments to sickle cell and other blood disorders. Let's start with sickle cell disease, though. For listeners not familiar with the condition, what is it? Sickle cell is a
1: relatively rare uh, disease. We call it an orphan disease. Um, Affects about 100,000 people in the United States, uh, largely composed of people in the African-American community. And the reason why is because it is a genetic disorder. So it's passed on through your genes. And the reason it's predominant in African-American is because It's a genetic defect, which actually protects you from malaria. And it proliferated in areas of Africa where uh, this country imported slaves. So that's really how it got to the United States. But the genetic defect causes uh, the red cells to sickle. That's why it's called sickle cell disease. That also destroys the red cells and makes people anemic. And unfortunately, people get pain crises and they die about 30 years earlier than people normally die, primarily because they cannot adequately oxygenate the tissues in their body. So it's a rare but devastating disease.
0: It's a condition that really can impact quality of life and, and long term health. There, are, as you mentioned, awful painful episodes associated with the condition. What's it like to live with sickle cell, and what are the long term consequences? Well,
1: it's a devastating disease. I mean, people are born with this disease. Um, In this country, we've become relatively good at treating the disease um, um, symptomatically. Uh, We've had one disease-modifying therapy called hydroxyurea that we use uh, in kids, but kids don't grow normally uh, because of the chronic anemia. Uh, Kids are at risk of stroke. Um, Many kids have silent ischemic injury to their brain, which affects their cognitive function. Um, And they can have overt strokes, which obviously affects their neurological function. So it's a devastating disease. And of course, all of this organ injury catches up with people. So the average person lives to be in their late 30s uh, to early 40s.
0: And it's a genetic con- condition. It's considered rare in the United States. But what does the affected population for the condition look like globally?
1: Well, again, as I said, uh, Dan, it, 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 it really proliferated in parts of the world where malaria was present. And so you find it to be very common in uh, the African, Sub Sahara, Uh, India, places like that. Countries like Nigeria, uh, which is obviously a much smaller country than the United States, uh, has upwards of four to five million people uh, with this disease. Countries like Ghana will have more than a million people.
0: I I take it there's also a population in the Middle East and and people of Spanish descent. Is that correct?
1: That is absolutely correct. In fact, one of the uh, things that we announced recently is a business partnership with a company in the Gulf Coast region. There are about 100,000 patients in Saudi Arabia. So we are committed to trying to help patients around the world. Obviously, we're starting in the U.S., but we are making actions very quickly to make our therapy available around the world.
0: The genetic underpinnings of this condition have long been understood, but it's only recently that we've seen uh, rich pipeline of therapies to treat the condition. What's happened to drive the industry interest in addressing sickle cell?
1: Well, unfortunately, I think many of us have concluded that there was probably a racial overtone uh, to all of this. We, we, we did not invest in understanding sickle cell disease uh, through the NIH, uh, like we've invested in less common diseases like cystic fibrosis. Our industry, Uh, again, did not invest in finding solutions to this problem uh, like we've invested in uh, cystic fibrosis and other relatively rare diseases that do not predominate in the Black community. The great news, Dan, is that that is changing. And GBT is a big part of driving that change. And I actually think we can uh, essentially pharmacologically cure this disease. Uh, we are off to a brilliant start with our first uh, therapy, but it will take more. And we're committed to to making more therapies and other companies have also come into uh, the mix. So so things look brighter, I hope, in the future for for sickle cell.
0: Well, let, let's talk about that therapy. Last year, you won approval for Oxbrida, the first medicine to target the root cause of the disease. What is it and how does it work?
1: One of the things that we've known about sickle cell disease is that you have to have a certain amount of your mutated hemoglobin, what we call sickle hemoglobin, in order for the disease to become clinically relevant. And the simplest example of that is people who have sickle trait have one good gene and one mutated gene. So about half of their hemoglobin is sickle hemoglobin. About half of their hemoglobin is normal, but those individuals have a perfectly normal life. So we know that there is a threshold of normal non-sickling hemoglobin, which will make the disease go away. And actually we know from other studies that it's probably in the range of 30, 35% non-sickling hemoglobin will make the disease effectively go away. And that's what we're doing with Oxbrida. Oxbrida binds to the hemoglobin and it turns it into hemoglobin that does not sickle. Um, And we know that the uh, dose that we've got to prove doesn't quite get us to that 35, 40%. It gets us to about 25%, but that's highly effective at helping these patients. And we're trying to make additional therapies that will get us to that 35, 40%, where we think we could largely, if not completely, make the disease go away.
0: What's known about the safety and efficacy of the drug? And, and I know that you released some data at ASH recently. Is there anything you can share with us about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, we've been thrilled that the drug um, is, is highly effective uh, uh, and it's, it's very well tolerated. And um, at ASH, We actually presented the 72-week data, so now this is longer-term data from uh, the patients in the original HOPE study, which was the basis for approval, and we saw three or four things that I should mention in that long-term data. One is that the effect is durable. Uh, The effect, as long as you take the drug, uh, remains. Um, The safety profile uh, continues to look just as good in the longer-term follow-up as the shorter-term follow-up, which was the basis for approval uh, at 24 weeks of follow-up. We also saw that patients are healthier. Uh, We used uh, an index called the the CGI, or uh, Clinical Global Index, where the physician determines if the patients are healthier or not than they were. And they did this in a blinded placebo manner, by the way. And what they demonstrated is that 70% of the patients, 75% of the patients were better. Uh, And they did this in a blinded way. Uh, So the drug works, the patients feel better, the patients are healthier. Um, We could not be happier with that. And we're beginning to see this now in real world data from physicians that are using the drug in the US and documenting their cases. we're very pleased with what the drug has done. We're not uh, there yet, uh, but I think we're off to a great start to help patients.
0: You spoke a little bit about uh, your collaboration in the Middle East, but given that this is a disease that affects populations well beyond the United States, is, is there any global strategy you're taking?
1: There, there is, there is, Dan. And so part of the global strategy are these relationships like the one that we formed in uh, the GCC or Saudi effects, of which uh, Saudi Arabia is part. Um, we plan to form a similar relationship uh, to cover South America and we will probably do some additional relationships that will cover countries like Turkey uh, and Lebanon where the disease is also uh, uh, significantly prevalent. So, So we plan to have business relationships to cover it. And then there are other areas where we have not quite figured it all out, uh, but we are working very hard to form collaborations, possibly with organizations like the Gates Foundation, uh, possibly with other companies to make the drug available in Africa, in Nigeria, Ghana, places around the world where we know the capacity to pay will be low but the need, the moral need for the drug is high. So we're working uh, on multiple strategies uh, and we're going to be successful because it's critical that we make this available to everyone.
0: Well, as you alluded, you've got a pipeline behind this. This includes a a monoclonal antibody that's in preclinical development to treat vaso crises. This is caused by sickle cell when the cells clump together and create a, an obstruction in tiny vessels, this is where a lot of the painful episodes come from. What's the need you're addressing here?
1: So this is, as you said, Dan, a molecule uh, that blocks the uh, adhesion or the sticking together of red cells and white cells in the vessels, which lead to these painful crises in sickle cell patients that we call vasoocclusive crises. And we know because there is an existing therapy which blocks uh, a target, which we call P-selectin that mediates the sticking together of cells, that works, it decreases those crises. That drug is given intravenously every month. And we have come up with a drug that could be given three times less frequently. So four times a year as opposed to 12 times a year. We've also generated a lot of interesting data that suggests our drug could be more potent because it really binds to this target P selectin, perhaps better. Uh, and so not only could it be more convenient for the patient, much more convenient for the patient, but it might actually even provide additional efficacy. So we are actually going into phase three, the last stages of clinical development next year. And we're also gonna do uh, a second study in addition to this chronic uh, infusion four times a year. We're gonna do a separate study where patients will receive one dose uh, directed at keeping them from being readmitted to the hospital after a crisis. About half, half the patients in the United States admitted for a crisis are readmitted, half are readmitted within 90 days. So we think we can, drive that down significantly, which would save resources for the health system, and it would obviously be of great benefit to these patients.
0: You've also entered a collaboration with Cirrus Pharmaceuticals using its gene control platform to develop an experimental therapy that's intended to induce fetal hemoglobin. This is potentially a functional cure for sickle cell and beta thalassemia. What's the thinking here?
1: it's all about driving down the hemoglobin, which can polymerize. So as I said, Oxbrida on average is turning about 25% of the hemoglobin into non-sickling hemoglobin, Um, not quite to that target of 35%. But what if we could give you another molecule, which turned on your fetal hemoglobin and created 10% of your hemoglobin being fetal hemoglobin. Well, you could add those two together, 25% plus 10%. And now you've hit that magical number of 35% non-sickling hemoglobin, and that could be curative. So these approaches could be used uh, in combination. And we also think that maybe we could make either of these approaches get to 35% on their own and be curative. So we're working on all of these angles uh, to make sure that we can get to what we think will be a functional cure.
0: And, and fetal hemoglobin, is this something that the body shuts off after birth?
1: That's exactly right. So fetal hemoglobin is the hemoglobin that we live on when we're in utero. And after birth, uh, we normally turn that hemoglobin off and we begin to live on adult hemoglobin. And in the case of sickle cell, patients, um, the adult hemoglobin is sickle hemoglobin. So by turning on that fetal hemoglobin, it doesn't have the defect. So it doesn't polymerize. So if you could generate 35% fetal hemoglobin, the disease would go away. If you could convert 20, 35% of the hemoglobin to non-sickling hemoglobin with a drug like Xprita, you should make the disease go away.
0: And what's the path forward for this therapy? And is there some point where GBT will take over development?
1: So uh, that's exactly right. So right now it is a partnership, uh, and it's early stage. Um, But if we identify a candidate that we would take into the clinic, uh, GBT would lead uh, and fund that effort, of course. Uh, We also have already announced recently that we have a follow-on molecule to Oxbridath, which we think can also modify 35, 40% of the hemoglobin safely. And we'll be taking that molecule into the clinic next year as well. So we're making great progress on all of these pathways um, uh, to really try to drive to this level of non-sickling hemoglobin, which makes the disease go away.
0: As you look at the landscape and think about the progress that's been made, Where do you think we're at and how hopeful are you about the the future for treating sickle cell disease?
1: I'm very hopeful uh, because uh, as you said in the beginning, the fundamental science to tell us how to cure this disease has existed for a long time. We have just not invested in it. So now we are investing in gene therapy, which is uh, an attempt to insert a gene um, that would make hemoglobin, which is non-sickling. And that data has been encouraging, suggesting that we are uh, uh, creating a cure. Now, this is a big procedure, uh, which is why we're focused on doing this with pills. But I think no matter how you get there, if you can generate about 35%, 40% non-sickling hemoglobin, the disease should go away. We've also heard a lot about CRISPR, which is trying to go in again and genetically modify your cells to turn on hemoglobin F again, trying to drive the hemoglobin F to be 40% of your hemoglobin. And that should make the disease go away. So all of these approaches are coming together and they really are telling a story that if you can get there, you can make the disease uh, significantly, if not completely go away.
0: Ted Love, President and CEO of Global Blood Therapeutics. Ted, thanks so much for your time today.
1: It was a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at Group.com.